Read the headlines. Sometimes, sometimes you feel like you're, you're um, stepping into the twilight zone. You maybe have fallen down Alice's rabbit hole and things are just not the way it seems they should be. This week, uh, a man named Snowden fled from America and went to a place where he would have greater freedom of speech and, and, and personal privacy and security. You know, a, a country like Russia or China or Cuba. It used to be that, 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 that privacy was one of those foundational rights in American culture and society, and yet somewhere along the way we've, we've decided that, that because of terror, because of danger, because of what could happen against us, we would give up those rights to the NSA. I remember watching, in the aftermath of the Boston bomber, watching um, policemen in full tactical gear chasing people out of their own homes in search of this one remaining um, fugitive. And uh, the people running down the streets with their hands in the air, automatic weapons pointed at them. Citizens throughout Boston, and I thought, terror has already won. And we are a nation adrift. This last week, the, uh, the Supreme Court made a ruling concerning marriage, not merely state by state, but now across the land. Determined that, that what we all, we seem like we used to know what marriage was, how marriage was defined. And yet five men in black robes have said differently. What was obvious is now opaque. We have, we have set aside God's absolute, and yet we have no, nothing absolute to replace it with. We are a nation adrift. And it's not unlike uh, you, sit alongside, you sit alongside a riverbank, and you watch this strong current go by. And uh, the water is rolling and tumbling around the rocks and the boulders and splashing and sparkling. And they're, they're tugging and pulling and pushing twigs and logs and everything is carried down by that current. You see a kayaker coming down the river. And the kayaker is doing all that he can to, to stay with and to work with the current so that it doesn't tip him. To work with the current, try to steer around the worst of the boulders as well as the obstacles that are underneath the water but are evident by the turmoil on top. But then as you're watching this, uh, this um, kayaker carried along like everything else as, the, as gravity pulls the water and the water pulls everything else downward, there's a streak of a of a silver missile. It's darting the other way. There's a flash of another one and another. And as the current rushes down, the salmon go against the flow. The salmon goes against that current. It must, it has to, it was made to go against the current. It was made to go upstream. The salmon cannot fulfill their God-given mandate to be fruitful and to multiply if they don't go against the current to do it. And so they will. So they must. It's not easy to go against the current. It's not easy to hike uphill. It gets tiring, doesn't it? 
It wears you out over time. And yet, God has called us to go against the tide. God has called us to go against the current. God has called us to go against the wind or to hike uphill. He set this before us. The book of 2 Kings talks about how can I live for God in the midst of a nation adrift. Now, I've given you an, an overview of the book of 2 Kings in, in the gray over to the side of your notes. You have one of these notes in the midst of your bulletin. If you want to pull that out, one of the things we see in 2 Kings, 2 Kings is a book of decline. It's a nation adrift, two nations adrift, two kingdoms adrift. Uh, already, there has been the great divide of Israel north and Judah south. What was one people and one kingdom is now two. Two kingdoms adrift. And as they continue their spiritual and moral decline, still we see in the opening of this book, through Elijah and then Elisha especially, we see that God continues to work powerfully through individuals in the midst of a nation adrift. These are dark days, and yet there are some who will still be dim lights in the midst of that darkness. There are some kings even in the southern kingdom that are raised up, and though they don't do it perfectly, they don't take down all the altars, they don't take down all the high places, but they turn themselves and some of the people back to following and worshiping the Lord again, even in the midst of this strong current going the other direction. Israel will be exiled by Assyria, 722 B.C., that's the northern kingdom, About that same time, there's a a climactic point reached. While one nation is, is finished, something turns in the other one. And there, there are a couple of bright spots. There's Hezekiah, there's Josiah, and there's some revival in the midst. And I want to look at one of those. I, I thought I was going to talk to you this morning about Josiah. That's why I made the plans. Those men that met with me on Monday, sorry guys, I, I got to my study on Tuesday morning and the Lord said, that's good, but that's not it. No, we need to go to Hezekiah instead. So you've always wondered where the book of Hezekiah was in your Bible. I'm going to show you this morning. It's in 2 Kings chapter 18. 2 Kings chapter 18, that's where I want us to go because Hezekiah is an important story. It's a climactic point in the book of 2 Kings. It shows while one nation is in its final decline and collapse into captivity, the other nation could have gone the exact same way. Do you realize that? Within a few years, Judah also could have gone the same way from the same empire. The Assyrians had surrounded the capital and were ready to destroy it as well. But it didn't happen. And it didn't happen because one of the things we see in 2 Kings is God works through people. And how God works through one person can make a difference to many. The story of Hezekiah in the book of 2 Kings has something to tell us about how will you and I Live for God in the midst of a nation adrift. What can I do? What can you do? How can we live when it seems the current is so strong against us? That's the point. I'm convinced of the book of 2 Kings. So turn in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 18. I want us to to take a look then. Who is this Hezekiah? 2 Kings chapter 18. If you're using one of the pew Bibles, you'll find us on page 275. I'll read the first few verses just to introduce us to Hezekiah, the situation at hand. I should mention uh, chapter 17 describes the final collapse 
of that northern kingdom, Israel. In the third year of Hosea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, uh, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places. He smashed the sacred stones. He cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands that the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. Who is Hezekiah? Hezekiah is a king. Hezekiah is the son of an ungodly king, and his, his descendant after him will also follow the Lord in equally ungodly ways, and yet Hezekiah is different. Hezekiah somehow is fed up with this, with this spiritual vacuum and deception around him, and he wants reality. And he determines at a young age, he's only 25 years old when he takes the throne, and yet he determines at a young age that he is going to serve the Lord. And he turns his own heart And as a result, he turns the heart of a people, at least for a generation, back to God again. One person makes a difference. That's what we see in Hezekiah. It's like the days, there hasn't been been a change in Israel like this. There hasn't been victory since the days of David or in the early conquest of Joshua. And why that is, is because Hezekiah is living by and living out God's covenant. What do I mean by that? Hezekiah is living according to God's word. God made in the, in the books of Moses a particular covenant with these people. I'm going to give you this land, and if you live in it, you're going to know my blessing there. If you do not live in my ways, then you're, I'm going to take you out of the land. I'm going I'm to separate you from that blessing that you could have, the fruitfulness that you could have there. I'll not give you that fruitfulness if you don't walk with me because the fruitfulness, the blessing is only in walking with me. Hezekiah turns the people back to walking with their God again, walking in his ways. And as they walk in his ways, they experience, like, like, like they haven't in generations, they experience again his blessing. Like the time of David, like the time of Joshua. That's what it begins to look like. And Hezekiah does this because he knows who he is. Hezekiah is a son of David. Hezekiah is a Davidic king, and there's a strong contrast here. He knows that as a Davidic king, if he walks with God, God's blessing will be upon him and on his reign. And so he determines himself to walk with God. The other thing that he does and the effects that he has upon the nation, they come out of his own walk with God. Hezekiah determines out of his own identity, I'm a son of David. I'm going to walk with God. I'm going to walk with God as my father David did. And he does. doesn't mean he's perfect, does it? But he knows, he knows who his God is, and he knows where forgiveness is, and he knows that this God will forgive, will redeem, will restore. He will make beautiful things out of the dust of what this nation has become. He determines himself to walk with God. Contrast that to Hosea, the king of Israel, who is not a son of David, but neither does he walk in the ways of David. And because he doesn't walk in the ways of David, his kingdom crumbles around him and is swept away into captivity. Idolatry, serving other things other than the one true God, does lead to enslavement and captivity. And that's what happens to Hosea, and yet 
with his Hezekiah, it's different. Hezekiah lives by and lives out God's covenant. He, he, he determines, I am going to live in God's promise. I'm going to live on the basis of what God has promised, and I'm going to live out the promise of God, the blessing of God. I'm going to live out the character of God to the people around me. That's what I mean when I say live by and live out God's covenant or God's promise. First of all, you have life based on God's word. You have life before God based on God's promise. God loved the world. He gave his only begotten son. And whoever believes on him would not perish but have everlasting life. And then we can live out that life. We live out that life of forgiveness and God's truth and God's integrity and God's mercy. We live that out toward others. We show something of the nature and the character of God and how he is making something beautiful out of us which will be expressed in Christ's likeness toward others. Living by and therefore living out God's covenant. Will you take a challenge from Hezekiah in the midst of a nation adrift, will you grab hold of God's promise? And if that be true, then will you not only hang on to it for yourself, but will you live it out for the people around you? I want to invite up this morning somebody who is, who is doing that. Somebody who is in the midst of not, because she has been grabbed hold of by God's promise, she is living out God's promise to others. My daughter Ruth I'm a little partial here. Forgive me if I exaggerate. But uh, we talked about this nation being adrift. The world is adrift. The world is broken. And one of those broken countries is a country called Zimbabwe. Now, the first question I wanted to ask Ruth is, Ruth, why is Zimbabwe so broken? Why is the need to minister to street kids in Zimbabwe so urgent? Well, Zimbabwe is a nation that's broken politically and economically. Right now, its unemployment rate stands at about 80%. And as well, the country has about a 17% HIV-AIDS infection rate. Now, this means that a lot of kids have been orphaned. Um, currently, about one in four kids in Zimbabwe have been orphaned due to HIV-AIDS. Now, as a country, Zimbabwe is too poor to care for all of these kids. And so what ends up happening is these kids are abused, they're neglected, they run away to live on the streets or other kids who are living with families end up being forced to beg on the street corners to provide for their family. Now, these kids are the future of Zimbabwe, and they desperately need help. So, you have a nation adrift, and yet Ruth is in the midst of going to that nation, going to serve in mission there, working with street kids, and uh, how, how would you, I mean, we could wring our hands about Zimbabwe. We could wring, wring our hands about our own neighborhood. But, but what will you do? How, will you, how would you live out God's promise? Live by and live out God's promise in the midst of a broken country. Well, I'll be teaching at a small school for street kids. And so through teaching there, I'll be showing God's love to kids who have never known what love is. And I'll be teaching them practical life skills and telling them about Jesus. And I'll also be working in um, a youth group that mostly has upper-class students. Now, my goal with these students is to get them involved in their community, to get them living out God's promises in their community and serving those in need. How many of you think Ruth should be there instead of here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, why, <laughs> why are you still here then and not there? Well, as a missionary, I'm 
supported completely by churches and by individuals who make pledges of monthly support. So um, unless individuals um, listen to God's calling and give, I will be stuck here and I won't be able to go and serve the kids in Zimbabwe. So basically, a lot of times we, we kind of take for granted what it is that missions is about and how it works. Uh, our, ch- our church has said, we're, gonna, we're going to support Ruth. There, there are folks here already that have said, we're going to, aside from what the church does, some of you individually have said, we're going to support Ruth. There's another church just up in Battleground that says, we're behind Ruth. She met some more people there, but she's in that process right now. Some of you need to know more about her ministry. Some of you know somebody that this street kids ministry and working with high schoolers who are, who are better off and how they would give themselves to street kids in this ministry. Some of you know somebody that that is their passion. That's going to resonate with them. They need to know about her ministry. Some of you know of a church that, that what God has called her to do, there's a church, somebody that she needs to be in contact with. That's something else that we can do as a church family to support those who are going in the midst of a nation adrift and a world adrift that, the, that we can get engaged in all kinds of ways of, of supporting and praying her into that mission God has called us to. So with her, with the, with the family that will be here next week, we need to grab hold of these who are our family. And we need to, to help propel them by God's grace into this ministry that God has given them. Thank you, Ruth. In the midst of a nation adrift, we, we live by... We live out God's covenant. We step into the gospel. We display the gospel for people around us. That's that's one of the things we see from Hezekiah. But you say, well, I'm not a king. What difference does what I do make? I can't affect the nation. Ruth's going to the, seems like the bottom end of the nation. Working with street kids, but you never know where they might end up and what influence they might have, but the, but, but the real issue is that child is made in the image of God. And when you've done it to the least of these, Jesus said, you've done it unto me. There are others around you. You say, well, I can't change the nation, but who are you near? One person. One person's sincere and devout worship to the Lord One person's devotion to follow Jesus, no matter the cost, makes all kinds of difference. Difference that we're not really aware of. Will I be answerable to God in what I devote my life to, what I give my time to? Will I be answerable? Because if I'm not answerable to God in the decisions of life, you know what? I've made God answerable to me. That's really the issue. It's one or the other. Either I am answerable to God... He is my Lord, or God has become answerable to me and my ambitions and my plans and my dreams. We are going to live by. And because we live by it, we're going to live out God's covenant. And when you do, when you say, okay, I'm in. I am going to step forward with with what I know the Lord has set before me to do. I'm going to step forward. I'm going to step into that. When you do, expect the enemy to show up. Expect opposition. Expect the enemy to show up. That's what we find here in, in, in 2 Kings 18. We're going to skip down a little bit. Look at verse 19. There's Hezekiah. Now, now uh, Assyria has, has come back. Assyria, after already carrying away Israel, now they've come back. And with Hezekiah's successes, he's even freed cities that used to be under Assyrian bondage. That didn't go over real well in Assyria. 
And so the king, has, the king of Assyria has come. He surrounded the city. He made an initial threat, and Hezekiah, out of fear, tried to buy him off. But you know what? You can't buy off the bully, can you? Sooner or later, the bully's going to come back for more lunch money. You cannot buy off a bully. And that doesn't work with Hezekiah either. And soon, the Assyrian army is surrounded, has taken over other towns, has moved south, and has surrounded the, the, the capital city, the walled city of Jerusalem. It's kind of like Jericho in reverse, all right? Pick it up in verse 19. The field commander, the, the Assyrian general, on behalf of his king, says to, to, to a delegation that has come out to discuss with him, tell this to Hezekiah. This is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say that you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. On whom are you depending that you would rebel against me? Look, are you depending on Egypt? That splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it? That's what Pharaoh, king of Assyria, is to all who would depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah has removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem only? The enemy comes. The, the Assyria strikes back. But when, when the enemy rises up, you expect the enemy to show up, but don't believe his lies. There was a series of lies that the enemy t tells Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem. First of all, those lies are sometimes half-truths. For instance, the half-truth is, you're trusting in Egypt, you can't rely on Egypt, Egypt is not going to be able to help you. Well, that part is true, you can't rely on Egypt. It's only half-true in this situation because Hezekiah isn't relying on Egypt. His father would have done that, but Hezekiah is relying on the Lord instead. So it's a half-truth. Things, things, things that are half true. Sort of remind, that's what the serpent did in the garden, didn't he? He told half-truths and a half-lie. And then I love it. He presumes to tell the people how to follow God. He's an unbelieving king. He's a pagan, this Assyrian, yet he dares to say, and if Hezekiah says, the Lord's going to deliver us, how could the Lord deliver you? You've taken down all of his idols. You've taken down all of Yahweh's high places, and you've limited him to this one single altar. Really? Well, it makes sense to him in his view of what so-called gods are like. He doesn't realize that Hezekiah has devoted the people to the true and living God by getting rid of all other idols, by getting rid of any other confidences that they might trust in instead. To him, well, you can't serve God that way. Have you ever had unbelieving people tell you how you should be serving God? Don't take your advice on how you can follow the Lord from people who don't know him. Sometimes they will be our best critics. Sometimes they can help us to see things about us we don't see ourselves. But beware that you take your cues on how to follow the Lord from people who don't even know him. We wouldn't take advice on how to follow the Lord from the king of Assyria. First, thirdly, expect the enemy to come but don't believe his lies. What lies? How about empty promises? Empty promises. Look at verse 31 and 32. I'm going down a little bit. This dialogue is continued, but I want to skip down to verse 31. Don't listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Come on, all you people listening on the walls. Make peace with me. Come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine. 
His own fig tree. You'll drink water from your own cistern. It's going to be so great. Until you co- I come and I'll take you away to a land, it'll be a lot like yours. A land of, of, of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Listen to me and choose life, not death. You see what he's promising? He's, he's promising something that sounds a whole lot like the blessings promised to Israel under the Mosaic Covenant in the book of Deuteronomy. He's, he's, he's offering God's promises, but it's an empty promise. It's a lie. That's not how I see Assyria bless those who surrendered to them. This is, this is like the promise of a lure at the end of a fishing line. It looks so good until you go after it. And then you are hooked and drawn away to destruction. That's the promise of the king of Assyria. You will be offered all kinds of promises. These are the things that are going to, you know, if you, will, if you will buy this, if you will wear that, if you will like these things and not like, the, if, you'll, if you'll agree on these issues and, and don't say these things, other people will like you and we all want to be liked. But the things that you, you, you do, the things that you buy, the impressive possessions, they're not going to be the things that make other people like you. That's not what matters most. I got to, we got to borrow. We, had, we have family in town. We got to borrow somebody's car while they were away this last week. And it was, it was a sweet little car. It was a little convertible roadster. We, I thought, really? Well, Julie drove it most of the week. But a couple of times on sunny days, I got to scoot around in this little top down. Oh, it was a blast. But you know what? Nobody liked me any better because of it. I mean, there I was in such a cool car. And nobody liked me. The only person who even talked to me was the, was the gas station attendant at Costco. I don't think it made a whole lot of difference what kind of car I was driving. You know, we, we, we buy into the marketing around us. This is what's going to give you meaning and value. No, it won't. Our meaning, our value comes from our identity, our embrace by the one who loves us and gave his son for us. Finally, the enemy will come and he will lie about God's own character. Look again from verse 32, reading on to verse 35. Don't listen to Hezekiah for he's misleading you when he says the Lord will deliver you. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sarvarfame and Hena and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Uh-oh. Do you hear what he did? The king of Assyria has just made it personal. He's not only trying to intimidate Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem, now he has poked God in the eye. Note to self, don't poke God in the eye. Did you hear what he said about God? This, what's, what's Hezekiah going to do now? This is actually where the story gets good. What is Hezekiah going to do about this? What can Hezekiah? Hezekiah can't really do much of anything. The, the king of Assyria knows that. He's already shouted that out to the city as a whole. Chapter 19, verse 1, when King Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and went into the temple of the Lord. 
He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shibna, the secretary, the leading priest, wearing sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amaz, the same, the, 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 the same Isaiah that you have in your Bibles. And, and uh, t- let's see, find my place. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace, as when the children come to the point of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord our God will hear all the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Pray for the remnant that still survives. And then, King of Assyria, Hezekiah's officials came to Isaiah. Isaiah says to them, tell your master, this is what the Lord says, Do not be afraid of what you have heard. Those words which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I'm going to put such a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. There's one more parting shot before we see exactly how God answers. One more parting shot that the Assyrians fire against God in verses 10 to 12. Say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says, Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. Surely you have heard what the king of Assyria have done to all the countries, destroying them completely, and will you now be delivered? Did the gods of the other nations, and on he goes again. You see, this Assyrian king has now compared God himself, the true and living God, to all these two-bit pretending demonic spirits and idols all across the land. He's saying the true God, the living God, the God who created heaven and earth is no different than that. Expect the enemy to show up. Expect the enemy to oppose you if you're going to live out of God's covenant, God's promises. Expect the enemy to show up, but do not believe his lies, especially do not believe his lies about God. That started way back in the Garden of, in, in, in the garden of Eden, didn't it? Has God really said? No, 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 God's withholding from you. God doesn't want you to have something good here. God knows that you would be like him if you only ate of that fruit. Seems like the enemy in all these years hasn't really come up with anything new. And that suggests to me that today you're going to hear the same kind of lines. You're going to hear doubts. You're going to hear whisperings. Don't let God deceive you. Don't let God cheat you out of something good. You really really believe that Bible stuff? You really, in this day and age, with all the advances that we've had, you still would believe the Bible? Really? Come on. You don't believe that stuff, do you? God can't be trusted. So his book can't be trusted. You'll hear the exact same kind of lie, but don't believe those lies. It's been heard before. It's been told before. And by those who are brave souls because of their confidence in the true and living God, it's been rejected before. And that's where we need to take our stand as well. Don't rely on yourself. What does Hezekiah do here? Look in verse 14. I love the image that's here. This last parting shot, this last letter, don't let God deceive you that the Assyrians send. What does Hezekiah do with it? Look at verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the messengers and read it. And he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, and thrown between the cherubim, you alone are God. 
over all the kingdoms of the earth, even Assyria. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. Yeah, it's true what they've done to the other nations. But Lord, look what he has said about you. Hezekiah, Hezekiah does not rely on on himself. Hezekiah doesn't answer the Assyrian here. The people on the city walls, they don't answer the Assyrian here. Hezekiah takes the letter and he forwards the mail to God. He says, God, this came to my house, but actually, actually this is for you. We talk to the kids for a minute. Kids, have you ever gone to the mailbox and brought the mail in? How many of you have done that? You've gone out to the mailbox sometime, you brought, you brought the mail in. Hopefully you didn't drop anything, especially when it's raining, which happens now and again, right? You bring it, you, empty, you open the mailbox, you grab all those things, and you bring them into the house, right? Good. So far, so good. Okay. Now, you looked at some of those things, right? There's an electric bill there. Oh, no. Kids, how are you ever going to pay that electric bill? It's yours to pay, right? It came to your house. You went out to the mailbox and you got it. How are you going to pay that huge electric bill? There was probably a phone bill in there as well. How are you going to pay that phone bill, kids? Did you pay that phone bill? Did you go break the piggy bank open and count up your quarters and dollars and say, okay, I think I can cover the phone bill? No? Well, that worked until you saw there was also the gas bill and there was also insurance with... Did you pay those bills that you brought in from the mailbox? How many of you kids paid the bills? Nobody? What did you do with those bills that you brought in from the mailbox? What would you do? I gave them to my mom and dad. Dad, I went out to the mailbox and I got this mail, but this one here isn't for me. And he forwarded the mail to his father. You see how it works? Imagine the stress our kids would be under if they were trying to pay our cell phone bill but it's not, our, it's not their bill, is it? It's not their debt. It's not charged against them, and that's what Hezekiah realizes here. When you, when you hear this stuff, when you get this kind of opposition, it's not personal. It's not about you. Take this stuff that you hear and forward the mail to God. Hezekiah goes into the Lord's presence, and he takes that letter, and he lays it out. He says, God, you've got mail. There's one person here in the room, I think, that still has AOL that understood that. (laughs) We keep the mail to ourselves. It came to our address. We think it's ours. We think it's about us. We try to meet it with our own resources. Really, it's not for me. It's for God. We need to pray more. I am convinced of that as a church. You and I need to pray more. We need to commit more of what's before us to the Lord to do on our behalf. It may be that there's something that I'm supposed to do in the midst, but take the time to find out from God, God, what would you have me to do? Because, Lord, this is not about me. This is about you. Your name, your character is at stake here. And we're forwarding the mail to God. Are you dismayed by a nation adrift? Are you concerned about someone that you love and care for, the choices that they're making? Do you have problems, troubles that you face that are far greater than your ability to meet them? You don't know what to do. Forward the mail to God. 
We need to take these things, we need to lay them out before the Lord of heaven and earth. You know, God allows these things. He allows this pressure to come upon us because with Hezekiah here, it pressed him closer to God's presence. He said, God, I've got nothing, there's nothing I can do but pray. And that's a great place to be. It's a great place to be in full dependence upon the Lord. God will sometimes allow the enemy to, to, to scare us and to frighten us, to chase us back around him again. Because close to him is the best place for us to be. God uses those things to press us closer. In response to that kind of prayer, in response to laying it out and saying, God, this is your mail, God says, oh yeah, don't worry, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, I've got this. Through Hezekiah's answers, I love some of the colorful language in Hezekiah's answers. He says, uh, this is what you need to go and tell the king of Assyria. My virgin daughter of Zion, she despises you. She laughs at you. My kids in Jerusalem, they're not afraid of you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee, as you run away. Who have you insulted? I raised you up. I raised you up, and buddy, I'm going to put you down. That's what the Lord says to the king of Assyria. See, the Assyrians would take their captives and they would often put rings in their noses or hooks in their mouths or hooks in their, in their arms, in their flesh, and they would drag them with those hooks back into captivity. And look what God says in verse 28. He takes their own viciousness and uses it against them. Because you rage against me and your insolence has reached my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way that you came. God says, I've got this. To Hezekiah, he makes a promise, an immediate restoration, and also there's a future promise that's hidden away in this. Look at the end of the chapter from verse, uh, verse 32 of chapter 19. Therefore, this is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. He will not enter here. You know, when the, when the king of Assyria says this, the king of Assyria is, is going to take this city just like all the others, and God says, no, the king of Assyria will never enter this city. You know who was celebrating that news when he read that headline? People over in Babylon. Well, they would get to come along later, and they would get Jerusalem because there was no way Assyria would take it. There was no way. Israel would continue for, for more than 100 years because Assyria would never win against them now. This king of Assyria will not enter the city. He will not shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp. By the way that he came, he will return. He will enter. He will not enter the city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for, the, for my sake and the sake of David, my servant. His promise to David that is being lived in and stepped into by the present son of David, King Hezekiah. That night, the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the, when the people got up the next morning, 185,000 of them woke up dead. There were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh, and he stayed there. And one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his own God, his sons cut him down with the sword, and fled to the land of Ararat. God says, I'm going I'm to I'm deal with him, but not here. 
Not now. Oh, I'm going to cause him to flee. And, and ancient historians have independently verified that there was some great disaster that came upon the Assyrians that caused them to withdraw without taking Jerusalem. And then later, the king of Assyria was murdered, assassinated by his own sons in his own God's temple. God says, yeah, I'm going to deal with him, but not here. I'm going to send him home. And there where he thinks he's the safest, in the temple of his own so-called gods, there I'll strike him down. Just as I have said, God is not mocked. God will keep his promises. Meanwhile, again in Judah, the people will put roots downward and they will bear fruit upward. There will, be, there will come a time again when the people will, will take root in this land and will bear fruit out of blessing to God. We don't know how many Assyrians were left to go home. 185,000 were dead. It shows the great disaster, the, the, the kind of threat that Hezekiah was actually faced with that size of an army in ancient times that was arrayed against him. It was a huge threat faced by Hezekiah. All he could do was pray. It was too much for, the, for Hezekiah. It was too much for Judah. It was too much for the people of Jerusalem. But it was not too much for God. God kept his word there. He always does. You know, the issues around us today, they're far bigger than us, aren't they? Aren't they far bigger than us? What can one person do? That's not the issue. What would God have you to do? That is the issue. How can we live for God in the midst of a nation adrift? I will live by God's promise. I will live out the promises of God toward others around me. I'll expect the enemy to show up. I'll expect the enemy to oppose me. But when he does, I will not believe his lies. When the enemy shows up against me, when the enemy brings his lies, I will not rely on myself. I will forward the mail to God. We need to pray more. We need to pray more and fret less. We need to do that right now. You have in your bulletins white cards. Sometimes we use these more, sometimes we don't use them so much. But there's an opportunity on those white cards to share a prayer request. And I don't care if you do this with your name on the card or whether you do it anonymously. But I'd like us to take those cards and I'd like us to, to consider in our minds, what are you concerned about? What letter do you need to lay before the Lord? Who do you know that needs Christ's forgiveness that we should be praying for? What trouble are you facing? What fears are rolling around in your own mind, robbing you of peace, the ability to just rest in God? What are you longing to see God do around us? What are you longing to see God do in using you? To whom would you ask God to send you? I know Ruth's going to write down Zimbabwe. I want to use this white card as a way to express a prayer, what it is that you would lay before God. Like I said, you can keep it anonymous if you need to. That's not the point. But we need to pray more. We need to take these things out of our own minds and we need to lay them before the Lord. We need to forward some mail to God. And God was not done in Jerusalem. Could it be, could it be that God is not done in this city? Could it be that God is not done here either? Will we dare to ask God for that? Will we dare to ask God to use us in some of his greatest remaining work right here in this community, in this city? Let's pray.
God, would you do that? Lord, would you, according to the promises of your word and according to who you are, would you use us even, Lord, this weekend, this next week, would you use us in this place, in the midst of a nation adrift, Lord, remind us of your promise and point us, Lord, toward living those out to the people around us. Father, use us to show your mercy. And Lord, because of confidence in you, turn our eyes upon you that we would not be intimidated, intimidated by the enemy's lies or threats. Lord, we bring these needs to you this morning. We will trust you for your work in this city. We pray it in Jesus' name.